The Unexpected Cosmology, Episode 5. Seriously, what does it matter if the diary of Anne Frank is a hoax? The Anne Frank House in Amsterdam has made it abundantly clear that they will seek legal action against anyone who doubts the official narrative, which just so happens to be their narrative. I'm only one or two sentences in, and already you should be planning your first Neil Armstrong moon flag on the Hollywood basement soundstage. Whenever the law threatens a hefty fine or incarceration for choosing not to believe a government-sponsored narrative, you can be outright certain what you're dealing with. Think they're just yanking your chain? As recently as 2018, authorities in Germany arrested serial Holocaust denier Ursula Haverbeck, an 89-year-old grandmother, for failing to show up to prison after her sentence. That's real classy of you, fatherland. I'm sure she was a threat to the very fabric of free society. And now that Ursula Haverbeck is out of the way, the Anne Frank House website has more to say on the matter. I will present their full statement, breaking only for size and some comments. They write, people who have claimed or still claim that the diary is not genuine have a political agenda. This is true. I would like to say that I am with the Rebel Alliance against the Empire. Moving on. They often also say or write that the Holocaust never happened, or they try to prove that there were no gas chambers at Auschwitz, and that the figure of six million Jews murdered during the Second World War is an exaggeration. Oh dear, people actually question that? Are you trying to say that people shouldn't look into those claims? I'm asking for a friend. The Diary of Anne Frank is an important document of the Holocaust. Say it ain't so. <laughs> and since the Second World War, Anne Frank has become the most well-known symbol of the persecution of the Jews. Emphasis is my own. People and organizations that deny or trivialize the Holocaust are attempting to exonerate and rehabilitate the national socialist system. Or, by spreading doubts on the fate of the Jews during the Second World War, they try to undermine the state of Israel's right to exist. So, help me understand this. Is it the state of Israel you're trying to defend, or the little girl's book? Seems like a rather large leap that one would be mutual upon the other, or is it? I'm trying to remember who it was that said that truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. Darn. <laughs> it was Augustine. The man from Hippo was a spook. But you get my point. The New World Order, scratch that, and Frank House, believes their narrative needs to be defended from anyone who might stick their nose where it doesn't belong. Because our museum curators believe the truth is weak and helpless and cannot stand on its own. Considering there is a possibility that the boys down at Langley read my material on their bathroom breaks, perhaps even Mossad and, while we're at it, tea time for MI6, I want to make this absolutely clear to the hall monitors, Gestapo, and slave masters of our motionless plane. I am not questioning whether the 13-year-old Jewish girl, who we know as Anne Frank, wrote a diary. It's a mute point. I mean, 
I wrote a diary at the whereabouts of 13, and it sucks. Nobody would ever publish it. I may have even burned it. Seriously, I'm not envious. Good for Anne. She has some obvious literary chops. Are we good? Masad Merkazi, Leigh Modine, Yule Tafkidim, Mayuhadim? Cool. Moving on. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, I would suggest you lose the pay no attention to the man behind the curtain mentality because it really didn't pan out so well with the Kansas girl and her dog, not to mention thousands of others currently waking up to your psyops across the plain. But it seems to be working indescribably for you and your intended audience. We're in the middle of the COVID-1984 pandemic, as I write this, and practically everyone's walking around with a re-education diaper on their face. Well done, sir. Well done. I know what I'm up against, and so do you, apparently. We've got a 90-year-old grandmother as our prized fighter. The official narrative of Anne Frank goes something like this. And <laughs> be sure to scream all caps in the comments section if I get a little detail wrong here or there. Thank you, the management. On June 12th, 1942, we are first introduced to the little Jewish girl who was given a diary for her 13th birthday. Actually, her parents, Otto and Edith Frank, allowed Anne to select which one she personally wanted at the local bookshop. Anne chose the red and white checkered autograph book with a golden clip. Her very first entry was excitedly scribbled down on that very day, and it reads, I hope I will be able to confide everything to you, as I have never been able to confide in anyone, and I hope you will be a great source of comfort and support. Anne Frank's serial writing started two days later, on the 14th of June, 1942. Within as little as three weeks, the stuff hit the fan. On July 5th, Anne's older sister, Margaret, received a summons to report to a Nazi work camp in Germany, post-haste. Margaret never showed. This is undoubtedly due to the fact that the entire family, Margaret and Anne, along with their parents, Otto and Edith, slipped into a concealed room behind a movable bookcase and in the very Amsterdam building which Otto Frank had worked at and owned. Otto had started his business, named Opita, in 1933, manufacturing and selling pectin, an instrumental ingredient for producing jam. The Van Pels family joined the Franks one week later, and by November, they welcomed Fritz Pfeffer, the eighth and final person in hiding. Eventually, all eight members were arrested and dispatched to various concentration camps. Anne and her sister Margaret were carted off to Auschwitz and then almost immediately transferred to Bergen-Belsen. Of the eight people who were said to have converged in that concealed room behind Otto Frank's bookcase from the upper floor of Otto Frank's factory, only Otto Frank survived the war. Otto Frank gave the girl her diary and then Otto Frank published it. If you're immediately wondering how Anne Frank's checkered diary survived such an ordeal, then you're already asking the wrong questions according to the Anne Frank house. The Wikipedia describes its durability as follows. The manuscript, written on loose sheets of paper, was found strewn on the floor of the hiding place by Miepgez and Bep Voskul after the family's arrest. 
but before their rooms were ransacked by the Dutch police and the Gestapo. They were kept safe and given to Otto Frank after the war. With the original notes, when Anne's death was confirmed in the spring of 1945. So far, everything we've just experienced is convenient, to say the least. The book was first published under the title, The Annex, Diary Notes, 14 June 1942, 1st August 1944, by Contact Publishing on the 25th of June 1947. It was an immediate success. 3,000 copies of the first edition were soon sold out, and by 1950, the Annex had already achieved its sixth edition. We need to remember here that the worst war in recorded human history had only just ended. Europe still lay in rubble. The official narrative claims an estimated total of 70 to 85 million people perished off the face of the earth which was about 3% of the world's population. The war sucked for everyone involved. Let's put it like this. Many of our grandfathers visited France and Germany only once in their life. If they never returned, it probably has something to do with the fact that they were running alongside a tank from Paris onward, screaming lightning in every shrub they passed. They'd had enough in the way of sightseeing and weren't even European. Most had a white picket fence and a green lawn, mired only by dog poo to return to. Anne Frank was published two years after her death, when just about everyone was trying to move on and forget the horrors of their past, much less that of a strange, unfortunate girl. After Anne Frank was introduced to America and the UK in 1952 with the title, The Diary of a Young Girl, which included an introduction written by former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, because there's clearly no agenda here, her book would go on to sell 30 million copies worldwide and in over 70 languages. Its popularity inspired the 1955 play The Diary of Anne Frank, which was again adapted for the screen in 1959. Those of you familiar with my work will likely know what comes next. Stuff like this doesn't just happen on its own. The mere fact that Anne Frank is included in several lists of the top books of the 20th century should plant another immediate moon flag in your mind. Spooks only invest in their own operation. That's the reality of the world we live in. Dozens of black men die down the block unreported while the media makes news out of Langley's boys, Rodney King and George Floyd because the CIA owns the media. That also means spooks write their own reviews, like Walt Whitman. They make movies. They produce music. They purchase art. They finance museums. Spooks even buy books, like 3,000 of the same title all at once, if you get my drift. They needn't pray to move mountains because they have the money and the resources to simply do it. I guess what I'm trying to say is, we only know about the 13-year-old girl, Anne Frank, because of spooks. Actually, it hadn't even crossed my mind to write about Anne Frank until I came to learn that the little 13-year-old Jewish girl has also most recently become a 21st century vlogger. Wait, what? 
I probably wouldn't have thought much of it either had I not noticed that Anne Frankhouse was putting the series out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Anne Frankhouse, the one in the Netherlands, the official museum curators of Illuminati-approved textbook history. Same house which Otto Frank started. Also, part of the reason why Otto Frank spent the remainder of his life, some three decades, taking to court those whom Big Brother, scratch that, the state, had deemed deniers. The house receives over a million visitors each year. I get it. Propaganda needs your continued support. You need to promote Anne to a new generation. So, she's a vlogger. For all you older readers out there, a vlogger is someone who creates and uploads a video blog. So, they essentially film their life rather than writing about it. Perhaps the reasoning behind this rather odd decision simply comes down to the likelihood that kids these days no longer read and thus the effect which the behind the curtain scratch that powers that should not be had hoped to imprint upon young impressionable minds no longer works. Let me remind you that we're dealing with the Holocaust with a capital H. Even questioning the capital H can land one in a heap of butthurt in prison. Therefore, you don't make fiction out of it. You don't suddenly switch genres. You don't turn Anne Frank into reality television. Because reality television is fake. I don't care how illiterate your audience is, Massad, Anne Frank House, but you can't just make crap up. Scratch that, you can make crap up. You're holding hands with Big Brother the people who write our education pamphlets. You can make up whatever crap you want and then parody that crap and people will line up to thank you for it because technically they're law-abiding citizens for doing so. Bravo, Eye of Sauron or Horus or whatever, bravo. We've seen this go down over and over again with PSYOPs. At best, the story becomes stale. Slaves become disinterested in the lie, therefore, the intended effects of the psychodrama begin to wear off in the barracoon. Often, the lie is drilled full of so many plot holes that historians or men in lab coats need to be brought in to either save the narrative or simply find some new angle. The Titanic is one perfect example. When the psychodramatic exercise wears off, give the ship's demise an entirely new overhaul, like have the iceberg lop it in half. That's a neat plot twist. Just make crap up. Media is in the business of making news. Making crap up sells news. Consider the following. Transforming Anne Frank the writer into Anne Frank the vlogger is intellectually dishonest in every way imaginable, especially after considering the fact that Anne Frank rewrote her own work. We call this the writing process. Are they trying to gloss over the fact that Anne Frank's recollection was a work in progress, something which has been heavily criticized, or are they trying to erase the far less practical fact, which Anne's publishers were finally pressed to admit in recent years, that Otto Frank was her co-writer? You tell me. I'll speak for myself, but Otto Frank would be proud. Oh, wait. <laughs> Anne Frankhouse tracked down one of Anne Frank's childhood friends, and she is proud of their decision.
Of course she is. Now, I have on my shelf a rather voluptuous hardbound book titled Life, Our Century in Pictures. It's something I picked up at a local thrift shop a few years back. I like to do most of my creative thinking, if possible, in the actual pages of magazines and books. Rehearse the Langley narrative we were gluttonlessly fed in our youth. The propaganda many of us once believed as gospel truth. As my serial reader can probably already imagine, our century is essentially devoted to a hundred years worth of media-driven spook agendas, psyops, hoaxes, mystery religion exotericism, and psychodramatic exercises. Because this is big brother media we're talking about. On each and every page, familiar places and names sprung out at me. Charlie Manson, Kent State, the Challenger Shuttle, John Lennon, Watson and Crick, Alan Ginsberg, John Glenn, Bill Gates, Rockefeller, Hitchcock, O.J. Simpson, Elvis, Sinatra, Pentecostals, the Atomic Bomb, D-Day, E.T. As you can probably already conclude, some of them I have written about. Others I haven't gotten around to yet. So much to do and so little time. It's all a psyop. It was on page 203, however, where I had to pause and consider the method in which the pictures were spread out upon the page. You see, most of our century is simply a nostalgic reminder of the spook operations they executed in order to drive us even further into slavery. But now I stumbled upon two very different photographs which were mutually inclusive to one another and intended to serve the same purpose. In other words, one event was expected to inform us on the event of the other. The above photograph, which depicts liberated prisoners in the Bergen-Bilsen camp, was photographed by a certain Margaret Bjork White. The below photograph depicts a boy haphazardly doing what any young boy would do, I suppose, after a war had passed like yesterday's tropical storm. Take a walk among the corpses. The road, we are told, leads to Bergen-Bilsen. Both photographs are apparently related to the liberation of Nordhausen by Allied soldiers on April 15, 1945. And here, it should be noted, what makes Nordhausen exceptionally unusual to the Holocaust narrative is the fact that, unlike Auschwitz, the media poured into Bergen-Bilsen and the town probably as soon as the smoke had a chance to clear. Ironically, Bergen-Bilsen became a nerve center for post-war indoctrination, but more on that in a moment. In Life magazine, a caption reads, Allied leaders had known of a 1942 Nazi fiat to rid Europe of non-Aryans. Not until Germany's defeat, though, was the magnitude of Hitler's final solution apparent. The Allies rescued the gaunt inmate of Boschenwald, but were too late to aid the dead lining the road to Bergen-Bilsen. The Holocaust claimed two-thirds of the Europe's nine million Jews, as well as Slavs, Gypsies, and Gays. Many families lost three generations. Coming to grip with guilt among survivors, butchers, bystanders alike, would require more than the next three generations. Notice their choice words but were too late to aid the dead lining the road to Bergen-Bilsen. Wait, 
How did the corpses lining the road die again as part of Hitler's final solution? How strange, I thought. One could use the first photograph to prove the Germans had wartime prisoners, while somebody else could use the second photograph to prove that people died during the war. Proof, however, of Hitler's final solution? I'm having a difficult time connecting the dots. Something wasn't sitting right. Men standing behind a fence alive and well. Boy taking a stroll where bodies pile the side of the road. I immediately knew I needed to look into the liberation of Nordhausen and Bergen-Bilsen a little closer. I wasn't disappointed. As it turns out, both photographs appeared in the same issue of Life magazine. The date was May 7, 1945. Its cover depicts sad-looking Germans. By the look on their faces, they're probably still coming to terms with the fact that they'd been swindled into their second war against the New World Order and lost again. Fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> Fool me twice. I decided to visit eBay and track down my own copy because, as I have already mentioned, I prefer doing my own research among the actual pages of propaganda we were once so easily fooled to indulge in. I found my own copy for $9.99, listed as good condition, and took a screenshot only seconds before punching the buy it now button. So 666 is the cost once inverted with the shipping fee of $3.33. Perhaps this is simply to make up for the fact that Life Magazine wasn't selling with barcodes during the war, and as you're hopefully fully aware by this point, barcodes read in sixes. Also, spooks sell all sorts of paraphernalia on eBay. What are you saying, Noel, that you're buying an old magazine from a spook? Maybe. It's not the first time I've suggested as much. By the way, the magazine arrived in the mail, and once again, I wasn't disappointed. Here, if you're reading along in the article, I'll show you a full-page printout. If you participated in high school over the last 70 years, then you'll likely be intimately familiar with the spread encapsulating pages 36 and 37 of Life magazine. On the left, Allied soldiers inspect the nearly 3,000 dead prisoners at the Bergen-Belsen camp. On the right, two German guards, is one of them a woman, buries those bodies in a mass grave. We've all seen these horrific images dozens of times over, but for me, it started with 11th grade modern world history. The moment is still burned into my school, grasping for breath in the dark silence while the life-giving television screen flickers with cruelly bent and knotted corpses. <laughs> Those evil Nazi bastards, they did it. They really did it. They executed Hitler's final solution. Thank God we arrived when we did, and thank God for movie magic. What we need more of in cinema is the third right, because nothing feels so good as watching a Canadian Mountie bend down from his horse to slap a Nazi. With Bergen-Bilsen, we see video footage of a corpse being carried by soldiers. We see bodies being flung into mass graves. We watch a heaping of flesh and bones get bulldozed into bundles by a man smoking a cigarette. Indeed, Bergen-Bilsen is still employed as photographic evidence for the Holocaust. Those Nazi bastards. 
But look closer. Life Magazine, page 36. The surrounding buildings could use a little TLC, don't you think? Wait, what? This is undoubtedly due to the fact that Allied soldiers had blown the entire city of Nordhausen and Bergen-Belsen to bloody hell, as further pictures clearly demonstrate. You'd think an event like that would mandate thousands of casualties and mass burials, but that's probably none of my business. It's the little details. See, the Bergen-Belsen camp in northwestern Germany was originally a prisoner of war camp named Stalag XIC, intended for 4,000 prisoners. It was later converted into a concentration camp sometime in 1943 on the orders of Heinrich Himmler as a part of a program to exchange Jews for German pals held by the Allies. The fact that Germany was losing the war was more than apparent during the closure of 1944. In the matter of months, Bergen-Belsen swelled to 60,000 prisoners. Many arrived from Auschwitz. And then, in the early hours of 1945, disaster struck. A transport of prisoners introduced typhus into the camp. Typhus is a disease caused by infection through transmission from anthropods such as fleas, chiggers, lice, or ticks. I'm told it is characterized by purple rashes. By the spring of that year, thousands upon thousands of corpses were piled up around the camp. If the epidemic was killing them, it's only because the Allied bombing of German factories, railway, and other infrastructure had made it near impossible to bring any sufficient supplies and keep the prisoners properly fed. You may want to read that sentence again just to let the truth sink in. Take as long as you need. According to camp records, some 35,000 inmates died of the disease starting in January of 1945 until its liberation in April of 1945. They needed rations. Among these was Zyklon B. The Nazis used Zyklon B to delouse clothing and kill the typhus carrying lice because the official narrative wants you to believe they were in the business of genocide when in fact they had hospitals to treat their patients. When the British entered the camp on April 15th, typhus was still a thing. Nearly 13,000 bodies needed to be buried. The British were forced to implement a strict regime at the camp, complete with armed guards and warning signs to keep the disease from spreading. And yet most of the people seen in the picture on page 36 aren't even Jews. They're your typical, or shall we say, expected political prisoners, Poles, Russians. Even in the official narrative, the Nazis did not murder Jews with their clothes on. The Nazis had put them in a camp with actual doctors and nurses. They were attempting to keep them alive. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. We were all shown photo and video proof of a systematic extermination, or the final solution, and told the British and American troops were liberating what was left of a genocide when the fact of the matter is the Allied forces killed them all and then blamed the Germans. Again, it's no coincidence. The one place in which the media arrived in mass, Bergen-Bilsen, also happened to be the epicenter of indoctrination. Among the 35,000 who were said to have died of typhus at Bergen-Belsen, Anne and Margaret Frank were among them.
the young author was only 15 years old. When their father Otto was liberated by the Russians in Auschwitz, he too was being treated for typhus. That should tell you something. Typhus was a thing. That poor little girl, you tell me. Shame on you, Noel. Shame. <laughs> Quit stomping on our Illuminati-approved indoctrination literature. Yes, indeed, that poor little girl. Nobody seems to legitimately care about the little girl, do they? Certainly not her publishers. Let's set the record straight. Anne Frank was not gassed nor murdered as part of some Nazi grand scheme to cleanse Europe of her Jewish population. She died due to the fact that Allied bombing had cut off her supply of Zyklon B. Read that last sentence over and over again if need be. Take as long as you'd like. I'm not interested in criticizing the legitimacy of a little girl's diary because the real story of Anne Frank is her cruel exploitation in order to shamelessly push the Holocaust narrative. Though her own publisher has finally admitted to Anne's posthumous co-author, while decades of deniers received no credit. And it just goes to show, Anne Frank House doesn't truly care about the little girl. According to their own statement, they care about the agenda, and they're willing to use the law to punish inquiry from the very deniers who've cried foul all along. Israel, Mossad, New World Order, slave masters. Are they and Anne Frank interconnected, as Anne Frank House appears to suggest by admission, or are museum curators in Amsterdam simply worried that they'll lose a thousand or two thousand visitors per year? if the average, logical-thinking person is free to decide for himself. You tell me. But here's the thing. In the world I grew up in, we were given the illusion of choice. Democrat, Republican, Zionist. Then again, they're all run by the same management. And so, I choose none of them. Anne Frank is the involuntary victim of a cruel psyop.